You're listening to Roundness, the Queen's Library podcast. As I sit here recording this, the sun is streaming through my window. It's an absolutely beautiful day, cloudless skies, warm sunshine, absolutely no wind at all. Almost like the weather is taunting us all while we're stuck inside on lockdown. Now less than a week ago it was snowing. Yeah, it didn't snow for very long and it didn't settle, not even a little bit. But there was snow falling from the skies for about 10 minutes. Then later that day, we got some hail. Today, just a few days later, we've got beautiful, warm summer weather. They say that us Brits talk about the weather more than any other people. According to one study, more than 9 in 10 Brits have talked about the weather within the last six hours. This statistic left me totally, utterly flabbergasted. Within the last six hours? What if you just woke up? And more than 9 in 10 Brits? Today's episode is about the weather. About whether the weather is important or not about how we understand big, faceless things like the weather, and about how slippery the truth can be. Good afternoon. Secretary Mnuchin, Secretary Ross, EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt, members of Congress, distinguished guests, on behalf of the First Family... Welcome to the White House. On the 1st of June 2017, Donald Trump walked through the French windows of the Oval Office and into the White House Rose Garden. Countless video cameras captured him as he walked up to a podium emblazoned with the presidential seal. It was a beautiful, warm summer day. The sun was shining and a gentle breeze rippled the large American flag fortuitously hanging behind the president. He wore a bright red tie, and his orange skin glowed in the summer sun. He said, I am fighting every day for the great people of this country. Therefore, in order to fulfill my solemn duty to protect America and its citizens. The United States will withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord Thank you. Thank you. He claimed that the agreement, if implemented, would cost the United States $3 trillion in lost GDP and 6.5 million jobs. He added, But the bottom line is that the Paris Accord is very unfair at the highest level to the United States. The Paris Accord would undermine our economy, hamstring our workers, weaken our sovereignty, impose unacceptable legal risk, and put us at a permanent disadvantage to the other countries of the world. It is time to exit the Paris Accord. 
The 2015 Paris Accord was an agreement signed by the countries participating in the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, or the UNFCCC. The countries agreed to hold the rise in global average temperature, quote, well below 2 degrees Celsius, and to pursue efforts to limit the temperature increase even further to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Trump's announcement that the US was pulling out of the accord was not only televised, but also, as is now customary, live-streamed on YouTube. Immediately below the video, YouTube has inserted a quote from Wikipedia. Global warming is the long-term rise in the average temperature of the Earth's climate system. It is a major aspect of climate change and has been demonstrated by direct temperature measurements and by measurements of various effects of the warming. Global warming and climate change are often used interchangeably. Here are some more statistics about climate change. 1. Every year, 54,750 species go extinct. This is 1,000 times higher than the background extinction rate, which is the rate of species extinction if humans weren't around. So instead of one species going extinct each week, because of us, 150 species go extinct every single day. 2. Climate scientist James Hansen first testified to Congress about the danger of climate change in 1988. Since then, humanity has put more CO2 in the atmosphere than it did in all of history prior to 1988. 3. We use 100 million barrels of oil every day. If we stacked each barrel on top of another it would take us less than five days to reach the moon. Four, to hit the 1.5 degrees Celsius target, emissions would need to fall off a cliff, dropping by 15% a year, every year, starting this year, and not stopping until they hit net zero. Now that's not going to happen temperature is almost certainly going to rise more than 1.5 degrees Celsius. Scientists say we have just a 5% chance of meeting even the 2 degrees Celsius target. And yet, even with all this overwhelming evidence, all these cold, hard statistics, all these terrifying figures, I have to confess something. I don't believe in climate change. Now, I don't mean this in the way that some people mean it. 64% of Americans think that global warming is caused by human activity. Just 64%. Compare that to 97% of climate scientists. Now, I'm not saying I'm one of those 36% who do not believe climate change is caused by humans. But then, what do I mean? Well, here's another statistic about Americans. More than half of Americans think that climate change won't affect them personally. 
Now, this is closer to how I feel, but it's still not quite right. What I mean is, I understand that we, as humans, are causing the climate to change. And I understand that this change will have disastrous effects on the future of our planet. I understand this, but at the same time, I find it extremely hard to believe. Jonathan Franzen, writing in the New Yorker magazine, explains that psychologically, climate change denial makes sense. He says, Despite the outrageous fact that I'll soon be dead forever, I live in the present, not the future. Given a choice between an alarming abstraction like, say, death, and the reassuring evidence of my senses like, say, lunch, my mind prefers to focus on the latter. The planet, too, is still marvellously intact, still basically normal. Seasons changing, another election coming, a new series on Netflix. So, the planet's impending collapse is even harder to wrap my head around than death. Other kinds of apocalypse, whether religious or thermonuclear or, you know, an asteroid, other types of apocalypse at least have the binary neatness of dying. One moment the world is there, the next moment it's gone, forever. But climate apocalypse is messy. It will take the form of increasingly severe crises compounding chaotically until civilization begins to fray. Things will get very bad, but maybe not too soon. And maybe not for everyone. Maybe not for me. Magali Delmas, who's a professor at UCLA, puts it another way. There is a 99% chance that there's going to be a magnitude 6.7 earthquake in the next 30 years in California. Like the statistic about the Brits talking about the weather, this statement left me totally, utterly flabbergasted. 99%? Really? Now what's even more flabbergasting is that just 13% of people in California have purchased insurance from the California Earthquake Authority. Does that mean that 87% of Californians are putting all their chips on that 1% chance? That they're crossing their fingers, hoping the basically inevitable doesn't happen? No, not necessarily. The probability that California will face a magnitude 6.7 earthquake in the next year is much, much lower than 99%. Because of this, it's hard to believe in the risk, even if you understand the statistics. Human beings aren't very good at dealing with situations that are high risk, but that don't happen very often. So while we're starting to feel the effects of climate change, those effects are not dramatic enough on a day-to-day basis to convince the majority of us that climate change should be taken seriously. Actually, no. Not even that. I do take climate change seriously. I understand how serious it is. But I find it very hard to believe in it. Without climate change having a dramatic effect on my day-to-day life, it is very hard to have it dictate the decisions I make, 
the food I eat, the way I travel, the number of kids I have. But do these decisions, my decisions, even matter? British Petroleum has been in the news recently because of a new campaign that challenges its links with the arts and heritage sector. The British Museum has come under particular scrutiny because of its BP-sponsored exhibitions and event halls. The argument is that museums, by accepting money from BP, and in return naming key things after BP, legitimise a corporation that is systematically plundering our planet's resources and pushing it towards climate apocalypse. Let me tell you a story about BP. In 2000, BP announced a rebrand, a change of image. They dropped the British in British Petroleum. And what did they replace it with? Now, looking back, it's easy to laugh. But at the time, surprisingly few people were laughing. In 2000, BP announced they would be rebranding to Beyond Petroleum. The rebrand was the idea of the same PR firm that helped the tobacco industry to devise ad campaigns that were designed to take the public's focus off the health hazards of secondhand tobacco smoke. They did this by diluting the hazard into the larger, more abstract issue of indoor air quality. Now for this word, this single word, beyond, BP paid the PR firm $200 million. The rebrand has not aged well. In 2011, BP exited from solar power after 40 years in the business. In 2013, it did the same for wind power. Both exits were carried out so that the firm could, and I quote, become a more focused oil and gas company. BP might be regretting that decision now. In early March, Saudi Arabia flooded the market with cheap oil in retaliation to a dispute with Russia. COVID-19 had already cut demand for oil, so the excess supply led to the biggest drop in the price of oil in almost 30 years. BP's stock price plummeted by almost 30% in a single day. There's been another development in BP's marketing strategy since 2000. They've launched what they call carbon footprint toolkits. People can use these to calculate their personal carbon footprint. Right now, you could go away and calculate your footprint. There's also a version designed for schools so that they can calculate their total footprint. You wonder if that same PR firm is involved here, because this is deflecting on BP's part. Here are four ways we are told we can reduce our footprint. One, eating a plant-based diet. Two, avoiding airplane travel. Three, living car-free. And four, having one fewer children. How do you think these rank in order of emissions reductions? Well, having one fewer child has the most effect, followed by living car-free, followed by avoiding air travel, 
followed by eating a plant-based diet. Peter Singer, who's probably the most famous philosopher alive today, argues that we all have a moral duty to reduce our footprint. By not doing so, we are ruining not just the planet, but also endangering people. For example, if they're subsistence farmers in Africa, where climate change will make things hotter than they are already, or will shrivel up their plants, or will cause the rains to become more irregular. Now, if you were to do this by some more visible means, like going there and destroying their crops with a bulldozer, everyone would know that what you were doing is wrong. Because we're doing it not with a bulldozer, but by releasing invisible and odourless gases, people don't respond in the same way. And yet, all of these decisions that we can take to reduce our emissions, eating a plant-based diet, avoiding airplane travel, living car-free, having one fewer children, all of these decisions pale in comparison to what corporations like BP are capable of doing. In 2018, BP produced 2.2 million barrels of oil every single day. On top of that, each day they also produced 8.6 billion cubic feet of gas. BP have an enormous impact on our planet every single day. In 2010, their ship Deepwater Horizon accidentally released almost 5 million barrels of oil into the sea. 11 people were killed. The company paid more than $4.5 billion in fines and penalties. BP have an enormous impact on our planet. And yet, they remain committed to plundering it. But it's not BP's fault, not exactly. Me and Christ, writing recently in the London Review of Books, makes the good point that BP is legally obliged to act in the interests of its shareholders, which means to maximise profits. So, if we individually cannot have an effect on our own, and if many companies are shackled by shareholder interests and the drive for profits, where should the buck stop? There will be the di evitare ogni spostamento, vincolo per tutte le persone fisiche, in entrata e in uscita dei territori. Early in the morning on Sunday the 8th of March, the Italian Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte signed a decree that placed a quarter of the Italian population under quarantine. That's 16 million people put in lockdown with a single signature. Roadblocks were raised and checkpoints were set up. Two days later, a nationwide lockdown came into force. Over 60 million people. Italy took a leaf out of China's book. The Chinese government had already instigated perhaps the most ambitious, agile and aggressive disease containment effort in world history. The most dramatic measure was the lockdown of Wuhan and nearby cities in Hubei province, putting at least 50 million people under mandatory quarantine. Other measures were in place across the country, including temperature checks at the entrances of all large stores. Across the Yellow Sea, in South Korea, the government was, and still is, conducting one of the most ambitious testing schemes in the world, with thousands of people being tested every single day 
in over 500 testing centres. An army of people disinfect the markets and the vast subway system every day. COVID-19 is an interesting parallel to the climate crisis because it shows us how much governments can do and how big an effect they can have if they feel a problem is urgent. Illness affects each of us pretty much every year, so it's very easy for us to visualise the bodily effects the virus would have on us. The same cannot be said for the climate crisis. There is another parallel. The area of Guinea in West Africa that was at the centre of the 2014 Ebola outbreak had suffered from widespread deforestation. The deforestation displaced bats that were carrying the virus, forcing them into closer contact with humans. And it's not just Ebola. In regions of Africa where plague is endemic, rats on farmland are twice as likely to carry the disease when compared to those in conserved, forested areas. A growing number of scientists are warning that human-driven erosion of the natural environment is bringing us all closer to disease, which means the climate crisis will make epidemics and pandemics far more common. As it stands, a third of all new diseases are linked to land use change, such as deforestation. Good evening. The coronavirus is the biggest threat this country has faced for decades, and this country is not alone. All over the world, we're seeing the devastating impact of this invisible killer. And so tonight, I want to update you on the latest steps we're taking to fight the disease and what you can do to help. And I want to begin by reminding the UK's been in lockdown for a while now. How long? I don't know. It's hard to keep track. It's become the new normal, working from home, only venturing outdoors for our one daily government-approved exercise. Maybe a walk, or a run, or even maybe a bike ride. But only one. When you go out, it looks like that film, 28 Days Later... The streets are deserted, shops closed, an eerie silence, cats running amok throughout the day, kings of the streets. One Welsh town had a pack of goats causing havoc on the empty streets, climbing on people's walls, eating people's hedges, free to roam where they please. Everything is strange. First. First. Whatever extra resources our NHS needs to cope with coronavirus, it will get. So whether it's research for a vaccine, recruiting thousands of returning staff, or supporting our brilliant doctors and nurses, whether it's millions of pounds or billions of pounds, whatever it needs, whatever it costs, we stand behind our NHS. The Chancellor of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak, has said the NHS will get as much money as it needs to deal with COVID-19, regardless of the effects that this spending will have on the economy. Left unchecked, its feared coronavirus will engender a new economic recession. So the thinking is, by forfeiting economic progress in the short term, we can ensure longer-term health, both of the population and of the economy. Let's jump back to the White House Rose Garden. 
At the very start of his speech, Donald Trump said, Before we discuss the uh, Paris Accord, I'd like to begin with an update on our tremendous, absolutely tremendous economic progress since Election Day on November 8th. The economy is starting to come back, and very, very rapidly. We've added $3.3 trillion in stock market value to our economy. I might not quite believe in climate change, but even I can see the irony. What happens to economic growth when the resources run out? What's the point of an economy if the planet is in ruins? If you found this episode a little doom and gloom, Kate Raworth's idea of the donut provides some optimism. And no, it's not a literal donut. She says endless GDP growth is an absurd goal because the planet is not an endless resource. Instead, we should aim for a sweet spot between two extremes. We don't want people falling short of their daily needs, but we also don't want to overshoot our planetary boundaries. We should want people to have enough to eat and a roof over their heads and access to healthcare and energy. But we also shouldn't want to acidify our oceans, destroy biodiversity and change the climate beyond repair. Her ideas are a fascinating response to the widespread idea that GDP growth is the most important thing. The municipal government of Amsterdam in the Netherlands recently announced that Rawat's idea of the donut would guide policy decisions to mend the post-coronavirus economy. It's the first time a city has committed to Rawat's ideas. You can find a link to Rawat's website, as well as to all our other sources, in the episode notes. If you have a topic you'd like us to cover in a future episode, we'd love to hear from you. Email us. Our address is library at qebarnet.co.uk. Additional music in this episode was by Agora, Mira and Dr. Turtle.